I'm Bettina from Bettina's Kitchen and I'm a plant-based chef, cookbook author and blogger. And I'm Nikki from Rebel Recipes. I'm a food blogger and also a cookbook author. And this is our podcast, What the Focaccia, kindly brought to you by the lovely team at Odyssey. Very much like us, Odyssey believe that food is a way of getting us back in touch with the things that matter the most in life. Food is so good at bringing us together, getting us to think about new ideas and, of course, feeding good conversation. Bettina, you're so right. Odyssey actually specialise in supplying fabulous Greek and Mediterranean flavours and ingredients. And you can see it all for yourself on their website, which is odyssey.com, spelt O-D-Y-S-E-A. It's definitely worth checking them out. And also they have a recipe section, which has some amazing food ideas. And they have very kindly given us an exclusive offer for all of our podcast listeners. So if you order anything from Odyssey and use the code WTF15 at the checkout, you'll get 15% off, which is even more of a reason to check out their lovely produce. Right, let's meet this week's guest. Rupi is a doctor in general practice in emergency and medicine. He's the founder of Doctor's Kitchen, which started in 2015. He has multiple cookbooks. He's a podcast host and he's on a mission. Welcome, Rupi. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my my pleasure, and it's uh, yeah. We're embracing the weirdness of technology to record this. It's it's fun. Yes, <laughs> we're doing, doing it all remotely. You have so many strings to your bow. We we need to explore all of this. But firstly, a big welcome. Oh, that's so nice of you. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's been a while since we've like met face to face. So this is actually really nice. I mean, I feel like it's just going to be a nice catch up. <laughs> Yeah, oh, definitely. you wait. <laughs> <laughs> Got some special questions for you. Very yeah. special. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit nervous now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought we were just going to be having cups of tea and like just chatting about food. No. Yeah, no, no, no. Of course we are. <laughs> yeah. So, so Rupi, I'm really interested because. Um, Clearly, we all must have had, you know, like a foodie passion. Uh, there's must have been something, you know, burning inside us to get this sort of stuff out. So, what what was it for you? What was the catalyst? What made everything start? So it's it's weird. I, like I get this question asked a lot, and I think for me, it started right before I went to medical school. My mum taught me how to cook a couple of meals. One of which um, is a Thai uh, green curry with lemongrass and galangal and all the you know, Thai basil and everything. Um, uh, Cause she was like, you know, you need to cook before you go to medical school. Cause otherwise, you know, you're going to starve. So I, I remember cooking this meal and we were always foodies at home. Like my mum's a really big cook and the staple was Indian food, but she was really experimental with Italian and all the different types of cuisines. And I remember going to medical school and I, cooking this meal and everyone just thought I was this amazing chef. <laughs> when in reality I had a repertoire of like two or three recipes and so really to keep up this pretense of me being a good cook I had to learn a whole bunch of other meals very and motivating so, exactly it was motivating so um but I just loved it I just fell in love with food I'd already had like a really good sort of palate from my mum I lived with a few guys during medical school where um, you know, we would experiment with American barbecue. We would do loads of spices. We would blend our, you know, it was real yeah. like foodie household. Um, but then the whole health element didn't come until a lot, uh, well, a little bit later on when I actually qualified as a doctor. I had my own health issues. I had a heart mm. condition. And, uh, and then I started using my kind of culinary knowledge 
with some newfound nutritional knowledge and then kind of that's that was my trajectory onto you know how to eat yourself uh, better so how how did that actually what was your sort of you know to use a cheesy phase but what was your journey to that how did you sort of link, link it up was it sort of the health scare or was it how, how did it all work so to put it into context so um I was working as a junior doctor back in 2009, um, so over 10 years ago now, and I was thrown in the deep end in this district general hospital, amazing hospital, um, but super busy. So night shifts, um, eating out the canteen, cereals for breakfast, soggy sandwiches at lunch, eating on the go, yeah, um, you know, sleep, night shifts all over the place. Uh, and three months into that job, I uh, started suffering with something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats exceptionally fast, up to 200 beats per minute, mm -hmm. and exceptionally irregularly as well. And I, I remember I was going, I went into this um, episode during a shift, and I was admitted, um, like at the end of the day, during my shift, oh, and wow. I was parked right next to a patient I'd been seeing earlier that day as well, which is kind of crazy. Um and I thought it was going to be like a one-off episode. And I, luckily, I reverted. I didn't need to have a, um, a electrocardio version, which is where they, you know, in the in the movies where they, they put yeah. the pads on and yeah. they show off. Drama, and oh luckily, gosh. I didn't have to have that um, because my blood pressure was stable and everything else. But I would have these episodes two to three times a week. And I, and I, I remember logging in and, and, you know, I was literally going in for 12 to 24 hours. I had to take medications. I saw a whole bunch of different cardiologists. I had electrophysiology studies, I had a cardiac MRI, I had all these different things. Um, wow. And I was offered something called an ablation, which is where you um, essentially burn, for, what a better, for want of a better term, or laser, an area around the pulmonary vein that stops uh, cardiac cells from misfiring and causing mm. this irregular heartbeat. Uh, and I was 100% going to go for this, you know, conventionally trained medic, straight out of medical school, been told by multiple seniors and multiple colleagues, all in the medical discipline, that I should be having this procedure. I was a good candidate, didn't have any other medical issues, no weight issues. I was absolutely... And young. And young, yeah. exactly. I was yeah. 24. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I was going to go for that. And it was my mum, again, not medically trained, someone who, you know, has been a lawyer and a graphic designer and... and you know, keen foodie, but someone who's raised in an Indian household and had strong sort of Ayurvedic values about lifestyle and she'd overcome her own medical issues when I was a, a young kid as well, who said, you know, you need to look at your diet and lifestyle before you entertain something a lot more drastic. And mm. so with the blessing of my cardiologist who said, you know, just take the medications, but you're going to need this procedure at some point in the next six months. Um, and really to appease my mum, who I thought was completely bonkers. Like, you know, you can't just be messing around with a bit of kale to sort out something that's a, a, a you know, a, a real medical issue here. Um, I took six months and I just changed my diet. And I started off with removing the cereals in the morning, um, bringing in like Tupperware for lunch instead of eating the canteen food. I started doing a bit of research around this. There's not much on atrial fibrillation and diet, um, but just, you know, just hitting principles of healthy eating. So I wasn't sticking to a diet plan. I've never followed a diet in my life. Um, I naturally started eating less animal products. Um, and I started doing a lot more lifestyle stuff, meditation, sleep hygiene when I wasn't working on nights. 
But one thing I did, I, I remember that was quite important to me is that I didn't give up being a doctor. I didn't take like a year off. I was a, a brand new doctor, something yeah. I'd want to do my whole life. Why would I give it up? And and I think that sense of purpose was one of the one of the contributing factors that actually got me through that period. And within about a year or year and a half, my AF episodes stopped from two to three to week, per week to zero. That's um, amazing. And having, yeah, and I haven't come back since. And I, and well, I, I think, continue to see my cardiologist, but yeah. I think yeah, but, what you're saying is really important as well, that you sort of, you, I, I think a lot of people think that, to change your lifestyle, you have to just focus on that and then you can't live your life and sort of make it part of your lifestyle. I think yeah. a lot of people think that you have to do one or the other and the fact that you sort of incorporated those two things is is amazing and, and a tribute to that you, you can do it and you sort of, whatever place you are in life, you can incorporate it to, to a certain degree it's really important that people recognize that you you actually have a lot of a lot of power within yourself and but also like I, I i'm massively privileged you know i've got two parents a sibling i had a great support network of friends i'm medically trained i can analyze papers i'm motivated i'm otherwise generally healthy you know i don't have any disabilities uh, i'm mentally strong and so for me, it was easier, but I still needed that like impetus and I needed that sort of psychological um, will to, to do this. And, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do with other people and trying to inspire other people because it's hard doing this stuff on your own. And, it, yeah. and it's almost like I want to democratize this health information and get other people thinking about it because I, I wasn't taught this stuff at medical school. I wasn't taught this stuff... You know, what is it? A, a day, a day of nutri studying nutrition, isn't it? Is that yeah, actually it's true? A, yeah. It's a, so we we commissioned a paper recent. Well, I, I didn't commission it, but there was a paper that myself and some of my team members at Culinary Medicine um, were involved in called Time for Nutrition, and that basically chronicles the average amount of nutrition training across medical uh, curricula in the UK and the US, and it's anywhere between five and twenty hours. Average is about five, um, and mm -hmm. anecdotes of like zero are out there too. So, you know, we're lucky in that. I mean, I, I'm passionate about this subject matter, which is why I'm putting so much effort into the nonprofit I started a couple of years yeah. ago to try and change that 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 paradigm. But, um, but yeah, yeah, the, traditionally nutrition is uh, seen as a bit of a soft science and and not relevant to medicine, which of well, course is. I mean, I think, I think that's amazing. And you're doing such amazing, such, you know, incredible work. What I find really interesting is that I think, do you, I'm really interested in what you think. I don't know. I think sometimes think, you know, they, they sort of think that diet is over here, nutrition is over here, and that's all well and good, but they're still quite reliant on the sort of medical system. And I think for me, there's like some sort of a disconnect between the fundamental understanding that if you have, you know, the power of, of what you eat and your lifestyle. So, you know, I know that that's really, you know, what you're you're trying to do. But I find it interesting from a doctor's perspective, because traditionally, I suppose, doctors would be promoting, no, 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 just rely on the medication, the science. So it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think like a lot of the new generation of doctors are coming around to the idea that it's not either or, it's it's and. And and I think, you know, uh, ma maintaining sort of perspective that we need to empower people to take control of their own health issues, take control of their own health 
through very simple nudges toward healthier lifestyles, but also have sort of the safety net of, yes, more rigorous or more uh, invasive interventions like the ablation that I was going to have if required or medications for a short amount of time or chronic medic- uh, chronic medications for for people who need them as well it's sort of like we need to look at all the tools in the clinical toolkit so to speak in in order to make sure that people have the best outcome and i think a lot more doctors are coming around for that idea yeah i suppose it's using them appropriately isn't it yeah and uh, speaking of healthy lifestyle and and the term health um in very simple language, what are the three pieces of advice you would give just off the cuff um, to to better your health? If I could choose three things, it would be diet, sleep, and mindset. Um, mm-hmm. And those are very broad terms. Um, but but really, rather than like diet being something that you do for eight weeks, it's re- it's the sum of all your sort of uh, nutritional actions over a long period of time, which is why I have this this mantra of just one more. Can you eat just one more fruit, vegetable, nut or seed every single meal time? Because it's not a diet that you do for four weeks or 12 weeks or however long a diet plan is. It's your the cumulative actions over years. It's that habit change that really makes a mark on whether you're going to be healthy or going to reduce your risk of of lifestyle issues or, or you're going to be more resilient. And then the other thing about sleep, I think everyone's becoming a little bit more informed about the impact of poor sleep and why it's one of the, the, the most incredible things that you can do for your health is just simply giving yourself space and time to sleep and rest and recover. And it, it, it's almost like, you know, it was a bit of a, a badge of honor if you were able to do things on poor sleep, certainly at medical school and certainly in medicine right now as well. And, and across different industries, you know, whether you're working in banking or finance or, you know, oh, I, I only did this on three hours sleep and look at me, I'm amazing. Well, actually, we need to take a step back and, and really, truly define what what does, um, you know, what are your priorities? And mindset I think mindset and, and stress are, again, huge umbrella terms. I don't really like them because, you know, it's so all-encompassing what your psychological health can be and what the determinants of that are as well. It, it includes things like community, sense of purpose that, that I spoke about, um, you know, what your mission is, what your goal is. And there doesn't have to be something like massive, like you want to take over the world. Your mission can be like being the best father, your mission can be, you know, to to you know be the happiest and most supportive person you can do for for your network. Yeah. It doesn't need to be taking over the world or, or, or as grandiose as you know as perhaps some people's are, which is fine as well. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think having a sense of purpose is so important, isn't it? And it could be something 100%. you know, big or small. I was going to ask. So this is this is a question about sleep. Uh, this is slightly selfish. So I'm, I'm not you know I'm not too I'm not too bad at, at sleeping. But basically, I'm a real napper. Basically, I, I love having an afternoon nap. Would you recommend nice. that? Nice. Yeah. I, I'm a, I, I mean, if you have space and time to take a nap in the afternoon, I think it's actually one of those uh, tools that are, have been shown to be really useful. Um, uh, so yeah, if you, I, I, I would, I wouldn't nap at the expense of like a, a, your like good quality sleep in the evenings. But if you can nap for, you know, everyone's sort of set uh, clock is different, whether it be twenty minutes or forty minutes or sixty minutes. But 
if you nap and you feel refreshed and it doesn't impact your ability to fall asleep in the evening, then it's definitely something I recommend. Great. It doesn't at all. It's just an overwhelming <laughs> urge to have an afternoon nap on occasion. <laughs> You're going to live to 100. I'm telling <laughs> yes. You. It's, it's the siesta in Spain. Everybody yeah. naps in the afternoon. Yeah, 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 I just can't people, stay awake. People, people go home from work to nap and mm. kids as well from school. It's, it's amazing. I, I hope out of this lockdown period that we're going to be more encompassed, like more inclusive of people's, you know, needs to take a nap. Because I would love to do, you know, work in the morning, nap in the afternoon most days. I think that's like a great lifestyle. It's yeah. a great lifestyle. And, sort and of, I, work, you know, I work all evening. Time so. to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have time to eat have time to cook i think that's the silver lining of this lockdown that there's so many more people that have had to cook for themselves and Mm. i always say that one of the greatest sort of things that you can do for yourself is is to cook from scratch because you know exactly what's going into your pot Mm. uh you're you're in control of that and um speaking speaking of health and sort of to to go on to another question from what we just discussed what would you say are the main stumbling blocks for people because it's all it's all well to sort of say this is what you have to do but a lot of people struggle to either get started know where to start or once they have sort of fall off the wagon yeah. so what would you yeah. what would you say about that so starting i think is really important because you know if you go on the internet and you type in healthy eating you'll be bombarded with whatever the latest trend is whether it be keto or low carb or whatever and those diets might be appropriate for certain people, and they certainly have therapeutic uh, like um, approaches. And you know, I, I think they're potentially useful in those respects. But for most people, I think getting started is mastering one or two recipes that you can annotate and just sticking with those. And so, I always say to patients who want to start on their journey, look, what do you like? What what is your favorite meal? Let's look up a healthy version of said meal. And let's get you cooking that once a week minimum and having some leftovers the next day. And honestly, that that does work for a lot of people where they're just like, you know, once they've mastered one recipe, they're, you know, they're, they're on the way. And with the falling off the wagon stuff, yeah, I think most people, again, they succumb to this idea that if they don't, you know, maintain this pristine diet for months, months on end, they can ruin it with like a bag of Skittles or something like that, which is, you know, it's rubbish because like we said earlier, it's the cumulative impact of all your, your habits and your meals over a long period of time, rather than what you had on a Sunday or the Sunday roast that you decided to enjoy with your, extended family because you've been in lockdown for three months do you know what I mean Rupert, I think that's really interesting and I hear that so many times that mm. if you have one little hiccup you just throw everything out it's like that's it all over I'm just gonna go back to my old ways and it's a real mindset isn't it yeah yeah it's why like I, I try and put on on my socials and my feed and whenever I speak to patients you know don't worry about those small instances where you're enjoying food and it's worth you enjoying that food. It's like we, we have this thing, I think. Now, I was speaking to a colleague of mine who's a nutritionist and she has this like this term worth it moment. And I, I don't think it's appropriate for everyone and maybe not everyone listening to this because everyone has different sort of 
um, frameworks for helping them get through and achieving a healthy lifestyle. I think certainly for people who have an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, mm. none of this stuff is going to work, right? Mm. And we have to yeah. be a bit more mindful of those uh, those people who suffer with those conditions as they are growing as well. But for people who want to start and try and maintain healthy eating habits, it's kind of like when where do you want to indulge and where do you want to maintain your healthy habits? You know, I have like an 80-20 rule or something I like to call the 90-10 because if you aim for 90-10, you're probably going to achieve 80-20, yeah. Yeah. right? And so <laughs> when I go to my parents or when I'm out with friends, you know, I don't really look at the, the carb to green ratio. I don't really look at like, you know, all the cars. I'm naturally drawn to that, but I'm not really thinking about it too much. But on the other days, yeah, I'm trying to make sure that I'm getting my legumes in, my colorful vegetables, I'm cooking from scratch, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. But I'm I think we just need to be a little bit more compassionate with ourselves, but also give people some reasonable frameworks because the whole like anti-diet culture, I get it for certain people, but some yeah. people actually need some guidance. And I think, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it's as neglectful just saying eat whatever you want yeah. because I just, I don't understand that at all. And it's certainly not, what the people I see in the NHS who come from all different backgrounds are are, are needing and wanting, uh, you know, we, we do that, we do them a disservice. That's why it's yeah. such a minefield though, isn't it? Because firstly, everyone's different. There's so many sources of information, different things work for different people. Everyone's, it's so linked to your mental state, mm. um, you know, and your, your mindset. It's, it's super complex. I also think it's it, it's really difficult because of how food is advertised and the labels that we're allowed to stick on food. And it's very mm. confusing. I think it's very confusing for a young person because there's so much influence. It's not just TV adverts. It's, you know, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's what celebrities are doing. And it's just a minefield of people recommending different things. And mm. I don't know about you, but... I kind of think, and and this has happened throughout my career, where I was very sort of, I loved all the sort of vegan packaged stuff and things that had superfoods in them and tinctures mm. and powders. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Whereas now I think a box of seasonal organic vegetables is the most amazing thing and the simplicity mm. of it and sort of going back to basics of fermentation and yeah potatoes and cabbages and leeks and I know that you're equally as excited about that Nikki <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> um, but sort of rather than piling things on it's almost like you need to go back to basics and start from there and then sort of add things on that work for you rather than you know coming home with five bags of really weird packaged superfoods that yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you don't know what to yeah. do with I, th I think you're hitting a really important point there Bettina and it, and it speaks to like how I like to try and ground people if they are like wanting to start something new it's it's just start super super simple start with a simple recipe that you like and master that recipe and and add adjuncts to it and and different flavor bases that you can easily adapt for when you need it and then instead of veering towards perhaps the more expensive, well-advertised and marketed pristine powders and tinctures and whatever you want to call them, really go back to basics because what is health? It's nourishing 
yourself from within and it's that and those are using the cheapest and most nutrient dense ingredients on, on the supermarket shelf whether that be a red cabbage or a leek or celery mm. or whatever i mean people don't really realize just how incredible your normal quote-unquote food is that lie in supermarket shelves up the, in the country yeah they're they're superfoods essentially i mean the difference nutritionally between a kale and a cabbage is i mean there must be a kale farmer somewhere that thought i've got a brilliant <laughs> idea let's make this really popular well it's a pr thing but you know it, it's definitely a pr thing yeah so um, i i was uh, speaking to a friend of mine who's uh, a gp but he's also um uh, a biomedic and he's involved in some research uh, I think University of Exeter, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And he was telling me about some of the research he's doing with watercress. Um, and it's it's quite incredible what they're coming up with. They're, they're creating protein isolates out of it. Um, they're using it in, uh, in kidney disease. Um, the watercress product wow. itself is amazing in terms of its nutritional yeah. values off the scale. And it's like, well, if every food was given that amount of time and you know uh that budget to study it and it's all its nutritional profile and stuff i can imagine literally like every single food on your grocery i would have all these signs and you know yeah. superfood labels or whatever you want to call them and honestly if it means that people consume more of those foods call it whatever you want i don't really yeah. care yeah exactly as long as yeah. it's you know it, it's having a desired positive effect and people consuming more of it and they're having a better relationship with food, then that's fine. And, and whatever works for some people doesn't work. I, I tell you an anecdote, actually, um, uh, to this point. I was in clinic pre-lockdown, um, A&E, actually, because uh, I, I, I largely do A&E now. And there's a 55-year-old guy who comes in, uh, something to that effect, and he was like, like yeah, doc, you know, come here, I need, to, I need to clean up my diet. I just need to eat clean. Right, I, I eat too much crap. I eat all this junk food and all that kind of stuff. And instead, like, because I'm savvy to what's going on in Instagram and social media, I know clean eating and all that kind of stuff is a term that we don't use because of its uh, mm. association with um, eating disorders. Fine. But for a 55 year old guy, I'm not going to turn around and like, actually, no, 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 we don't use that terminology <laughs> because it could, put, you know, put you at risk of uh, an eating disorder. Instead, <laughs> that term means something to him which is completely different to what it might mean for a younger individual male or female um you know coming from a different uh genre a different generation where this i'm holding my mobile phone mm. is the tv and the tv is the radio so for, for him you know i didn't encourage her or anything it was like you know i understand what you mean let's work out let's see what kind of foods you like and let's see how you can get you know you better on your journey but you know i, I think this is my point. The vernacular around food is different for different people. Yeah. And we need to be a lot more respectful and actually just like inclusive of how everyone describes food. As long as it has the desired outcome that people eat better and they look after their health and they have a better relationship with food, I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, I agree. 100%. And I, but I think, I you know, it is, I mean, it's, all this is, is sort of quite nutrition-based, but I think you just need to, and I think we're all trying to do it, actually make it really delicious. And that that really goes a long way in making all of this stuff a lot more accessible, doesn't it? Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you know, hitting those different flavor bases for different people, being culturally relevant, being diverse, you know, all, all these things that 
got me into cooking in the first place. One of the reasons why I love cooking is a way to communicate through different cultures. And one of the reasons, and I, I think I wrote this in my first book, one of the reasons why my 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 food skips through different you know cuisines, whether it be Korean or Chinese or African stew, or Indian, yada yada, is because those are the kind of recipes I had to recommend to patients when I was training as a GP because I couldn't like, you know, just recommend to everyone have a Mediterranean or, or salad meal yeah. uh, to be like a bit more inclusive of everyone's background. So it's funny. But also, how it's, it's there's there. a lot, there's a lot of flavor in those dishes. So basically yeah, you, you're going to be getting some vegetables and some pulses and some grains and things, but there's an awful lot of flavor. So it's way more exciting to eat. And spices yeah, are good yeah. for you. They've, they've got, I mean, you know, if you dabble in the world of spices, they all have their own little functions as, fun, functions as well. And, um, and herbs and all of those flavors that go into the pot, not just yeah. the, yeah, it's one of the, not just one the of veggies. The, definitely. It was one of the reasons why, I mean, I was so inspired by a lot of my parents and, and, and their background and their sort of Ayurvedic traditions and stuff. But um, also the research around different spices I put a lot of that in my in my first book and i recently came across another book um which you guys may have come across it's called the grammar of spice and it's written by uh kaz hildebrand i think her name is um and honestly it's a beautifully designed book it's all about different spices it's all about like different sort of flavor combinations and yada yada And it's one of the most inspiring books I think I've ever come across because it just makes you want to use them. And I think yeah. that's like the desired outcome. If you think about, yeah. you know, what we want is, is more people being experimental with, with food. You're, you've got your fingers stuck in a lot of pies, basically. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you juggle everything and do you have time for fun? Tell us all about yeah, that. It's a good point. So I actually did a YouTube video on this as how I stay motivated and how I juggle all these different things because I get, I get asked this a lot. But for the listener, yeah, so I'm trained as a general practitioner. I largely work in a right now. So my clinical work is part-time. It's around two to three days per week. However, during the pandemic, it obviously doubled and I was helping out in ITU in a, in a non-clinical role as I used to work in ITU in uh, Australia for a short amount of time. Um, but A&E is kind of like my bread and butter. And I'm now even thinking about retraining in, uh, in emergency medicine. Um, so I can specialize in that at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm also doing my nutritional medicine masters at the university of Surrey. Wow. Um, that oh I'm my gosh. Finishing up later this year. So that's, that's been like 36 essays and, 12 months um i'm writing my third book well, i've written my third book and that's going to come out in 2021 january we've started the non-profit culinary medicine because instead of just talking about what's wrong in nutrition and you know heightening people's awareness and stuff which is all great and i love that people on instagram do that i'm more of like you probably get this impression i i like to do things i like to try and solve a problem and so instead of me just like talking about it on social media and like talking about how bad it is, like, no, we're going to do something about it. And that's why I pulled together an incredible team of dietitians, doctors, professional chefs, and we created Culinary Medicine UK, which is a, a, an evidence-based accredited course that teaches medical students and all eventually health professionals, nurses, allied health professionals, as well as doctors, the foundations of nutrition, as well as how to cook. So... 
they can talk confidently about nutrition and refer appropriately to the correct specialists as and when needed, as well as like a way of self-care because you may not be aware, but um, nurses and doctors, we're the unhealthiest uh, yes. people across our population. Well documented, you know, yes, well documented. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know we're, we're more likely to be obese, we're more likely to have depression, we're more likely to have cardiovascular issues, you know, all these different things. So one of the other things that I'm really passionate about is improving access to healthy options. And, and that's why I've done something very recently with um, – a company called Pollen and Grace, and yeah, I've you know, seen it. it looks great. Oh, I've tried thanks. it; it's very Have good. You tried it, yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> appreciate that. Appreciate it. Yeah, so and that's you know one of the things I remember when I used to work night shifts is I can't eat healthy. You know, you have to order in pizza and stuff. And so we're trying to figure out how we can look after health workers across the board, so they can better look after us and the wider population because. We are all patients. I, I'm I'm a healthcare practitioner and I'm a patient. But mm. everyone is a patient, you know, whether you're a doctor or a nurse, or whatever. And so we have to look after ourselves primarily. I think it's super important. Rupi, these are these are amazing plans. I mean, I feel like you've got like a real vision. I mean, in in your mind, what would be the you know the the ideal scenario? What are you aiming for in the future? Oh, you know, it's so weird that you said that because literally in the last week and a half, I put together. A vision board for the doctor's kitchen and also a personal vision board as well so i basically want to do a few things you know we're talking about like people being mission-led and sense of purpose and you don't have to be grandiose i'm the opposite i am super grandiose (laughs) yeah i exactly yeah so the mission of the doctor's kitchen is to um help 10 million people eat doctor's kitchen meals every single day and that's very specific. Um, that's important, isn't it's it? It's specific. Yeah, it's super specific. And to crystallize that, what does that mean? Well, people eat, uh, you know, at least three portions of fruit and vegetables at every single meal time. People have access to healthy options. You know, I, I want to create digital uh, uh, a, a digital shopping list planner that essentially allows people to plan a week so they can eat doctor's kitchen meals every day. I want uh, to improve access to uh, healthy and seasonal organic local vegetables that they can get delivered right to their, their doors. Um, there need to be convenience options. I want to start an HQ that also double acts as a cafe that people can actually interact with the Doctor's Kitchen brand. Obviously, I want to continue to write books. I'm not that media hungry, but you know, if there is a TV show or anything like that in the future, potentially, I love doing the podcast because it means I chat to incredible interesting people from around the world that can teach me stuff as well um and you know from a from a an even more grandiose view the only way we're gonna get these changes is if it's integrated seamlessly into our healthcare system and that's at the educational level but it's also at the delivery level as well to patients and so improving access to that whether it be via insurance with insurance insurers rather whether it be medical schools whether it be everything in between you know that's where i want the doctor's kitchen brand to to sort of penetrate um so yeah just just a few things so yeah. we're 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 sort of we're coming to the end of this, but we um, there's one little question that we ask all <laughs> all our podcast guests, and it's uh, if you have any piece of advice or if you've sort of have 
words to live by and it's supposed to be something that's sort of the first thing that pops to your mind or that you remember that you'd like to share with us this is you know this is something that I just put, i've only just come across recently um and it's more around business and entrepreneurship and the, the quote go, i'm gonna probably bastardize this so apologies but um <laughs> the quote goes around you know business is all about problem solving what makes it enjoyable is that you get to solve these problems with people you respect and you love and you want to hang out with and 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 that's what i i'm this is you know speaks to the the kind of position i am in my life right now where i'm trying to figure things out mm. and there are problems coming at me left right center but if i have the right people around me and people i love and respect then it's actually quite an enjoyable process. Mm. And, and so, yeah, problems are always going to come up, whether it be in business or life or whatever, but if you have the right people around you and you have that right network and you have that right community, it's actually an enjoyable process. So learn to enjoy that process of problem solving. How do you get the good people around you? It, it, it's introspective. So yeah. I think everything comes down to you being the change you want to see in other people around you. Instead of blaming other people for everything else, like, you know, this person, you know, is nasty or this person isn't kind of, or this, you know, this is this is what's wrong at this systemic level. Look internally, always look internally because you will subconsciously influence the change that you want to see around you. But always look internally. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's Such really good advice. wise words. What a great uh, note to end on. Rupi, thank you so thank much. You. You've been yeah. amazing. No worries. No, it was enjoyable. Thank you very much for listening. We really do hope you enjoy our food conversations. Absolutely. And please feel free to follow us on our socials, Bettina's Kitchen and Rebel Recipes. And of course, all of this has been made possible thanks to our sponsor, Odyssey, who supply incredible Greek and Mediterranean flavours and ingredients. You can see it all for yourself, along with some brilliant recipe ideas on the website, which is odyssey.com, spelt O-D-Y-S-E-A. And don't forget that as a listener to our podcast, you get an exclusive 15% off on your order just by using the code WTF15 at the checkout. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to get more podcast episodes and please feel free to give us a five-star rating. Happy cooking and we'll see you soon.